Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant to learn more. Hey, it's Kramer. My mission is simple, to make you money. And I want to tell you about a new CNBC podcast that'll make you smarter by giving you context, color, and debate on the biggest stories in business news and politics. Squawk Pod from my friends at Squawk Box is available every morning after 10 a.m. I'm sharing a full episode with you now, but subscribe to Squawk Pod today. Booyah! Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's Essential Morning Show. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod. A few days left till Thanksgiving. They make turkey yet? Joe has meat, or fake meat, on the brain. Former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor on Elizabeth Warren's many tax plans. This stuff is ridiculous. I mean, it'll kill the economy if, God forbid, this is ever passed. And we're still weighing the challenges ahead for Michael Bloomberg, from his billions in the bank to some of his policies as New York City mayor. Eric Cantor stays on set to raise his concerns. How in the world does he get through the primary and the Democratic side of things? He's way too wealthy. The base is way too woke. But Bloomberg's campaign co-chair believes in Mike's appeal. As people learn about Mike, they're going to say, this is a fascinating guy that has helped a lot of people. I'm going to take a hard look at him. Those stories and many more. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Tuesday, November 26th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Up first on today's podcast, an update in entertainment. Why don't we talk about Disney? Uh, Disney Plus off to a blockbuster start. This according to new data reported by the New York Post. Research firm uh, Aptopia uh, says, is, is that it? Aptopia says the... Probably like Utopia. Aptopia. So. Aptopia. Thank you. The streaming service uh, averaging about one million new subscribers. As we have here, dystopia. Per day. Uh, The Disney Plus mobile app has been downloaded more than 15 um, and a half million times since launching on November 12th. The data also shows many users are paying $6.99 a month for Disney Plus rather than taking advantage of a free trial. The service has generated more than $5 million through in-app purchases. Aptopia does not track people who pay for the service through Disney Plus website or the desktop computer. Disney also offering a bundle option for $12.99 that includes Hulu and ESPN Plus. Over the past two weeks, downloads of those services have increased by more than 50%. The Sorkin family happens to have been one of those that downloaded Wait, the service. For, the, for Disney Plus or the Hulu? We just No, ESPN. we did the straight Disney Plus. We did, we did the free, I mean, free, they require oh, the, the credit card. Oh, no, when no. They, we went. We went all in. No, we, we put. We're gonna, did you do the twelve ninety nine? I don't. I didn't pay for the. I, oh. I was not the one who hit the button on it, but we paid. But for whatever I'll tell it you this. For three years. I, I don't know if. You, oh, so you did. You went in for three yeah. years. Yeah. Okay. So what did what did the the Quick family think of this whole thing? Because the Sorkin boys were very excited about the Mandalorian, but we went through like the films. Yeah. And the boys were like, 
Dad, I've seen that. Don't we have, I've seen do that. I have deja vu? Wait, didn't you, that. Did, didn't seen you tell that. this whole story yesterday? Yeah. Okay. I have deja no. vu. Okay. All right. I, I, I don't think we talked about it on air. No, I think we did. Then we, then yeah. I, yeah. I think people mention. at home are going, yeah, I know the Sorkin family, the, b- yeah. the boys didn't find anything they wanted. Basically. I don't know about that. Uber getting some bad news yesterday when the city of London stripped its operating license. The shares tumbled on that news before recovering somewhat during the day. Uber has said it will appeal and can continue to operate while that appeal is pending. Joining us right now for more on this is Dan Primack. He is Axios's business editor. And uh, Dan, how big of a deal is this for Uber? Does this spread beyond London? I mean, it's a big deal were they to actually lose London, right? As you said, they can continue being on the roads. You know, London estimates are kind of 2 3% of overall ride hail revenue. It's certainly one of its five biggest global cities. Uh, I'm not sure it's a huge deal, though. Remember, they were first supposed to be suspended over a year ago. They were able to appeal. They got an extension, et cetera. When you look at what's happened in other cities, it's usually more about ride hail as a category, uh, whether even in the U.S., right, you know, issues of whether these people are really drivers or independent contractors or in other places, broader licensing. London is a real Uber-specific thing, so I don't think that necessarily kind of has, has waves that carry to other cities. You know, I, I, I wrote it off myself at first, but I, I, what I didn't realize before reading some details yesterday is that there is this problem where unlicensed drivers can upload their photos onto this so they can be posing as, as, as somebody they're not. And, and that's a little concerning. If that's what the technology actually allows, if that's what their system actually allows, that could be a problem if other regulars, regulators start looking at that, too. You have the problem where I think they said 14,000 rides were with unlicensed or uninsured drivers, I should say, um, because they weren't who they said they were going to be. And, and then just from a general security perspective overall, why have a system that you can't protect? No, look, you're absolutely right about that. I'm not, I shouldn't downplay the, I don't even want to call it a glitch because it's not that. It's an exploit, if you will. Yeah. It's a real problem. But it's, again, it's a specific one that Uber should be able to solve. You know, they say they're going to add some sort of facial recognition software. I'm not sure whether that'll work or not. But again, it does seem to be a specific technology problem as opposed to what we've seen with Uber and other ride hail companies in the past, which has been more of this kind of fundamental, should these companies generally be allowed to operate on our streets? And this isn't that. So uh, what do you think about the stock, which at one point I looked at it, it was down about four and a half percent yesterday before it stabilized. Well, look, it makes sense that people would freak out about this. As I said, it is one, you know, if you look at Uber, I believe kind of its five largest global cities comprise about 25 percent of its ride hail revenue. So it's a very big deal if it was to come off a market. There's also a kind of... um, I think I saw this in some, I think maybe the FT suggested, well, Uber loses money on lots of things. So if it has fewer drivers, maybe it actually loses less money. But it, <laughs> it, it doesn't, it, it's, it makes sense that the stock would actually go down off of this because it is a threat. As you said, if other cities, whether they be in the U.S. or globally, if they realize, and I'm sure they're looking now, if this exploit that we've seen in London, if this has happened in other cities, Uber at the very least is going to face penalties. Dan, it's good to see you. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks. Impossible Foods is reportedly in talks with investors about a new round of fundraising. I, I still trying to figure this out. According to Reuters, the company is looking to capitalize on growing consumer demand for meat alternatives given the success of Rival Beyond Meat. The report says Impossible is looking to raise between three and four hundred million dollars, which would lift its valuation to between three and five billion. The report cautions that plans uh, may change best based on investor feedback, and I, I guess I assumed. Uh, jumping ahead that when this replaces all meat across the entire planet, that the valuation will be more than $3 billion. It's a long way to go. I I know it's a long way to go. I know it's a long way to go. 
But the market, you know, there is terminal pricing. And, you know, people, if it's going to happen, we just got to watch it. It's like, remember gene therapy? Gene therapy, gene therapy, gene therapy, gene the entire universe of gene therapy companies 10 years ago when it was, or then uh, the other one, what was the other one? Stem cells. The entire stem cell industry, the market cap of all the companies combined was like $400 million. And it's like, we read about it the way you that you... Don't believe it until you show it. And I know. years ago, they weren't there. Well, Beyond, Meat, Beyond Meat has been as high as $239. So mm-hmm. at that point, it was six, what four times higher than it is right now. So at one point, it had almost a $20 billion market cap. Here's the, the question. What do they do with that money? Do they use it to pay off early investors, or do they use it to, to increase their production, right? That's the big question with it. If you think there's more demand for it, and you need to be able to, what if you got five percent? Pay off the early investors. Right. What if you got five percent of meat re- replaced with this? It seems like it'd be a hundred billion dollar company. Right. If if you ever got to that point, but I think that tells you about who's eating this stuff right now and how. But it, it's it's early in Burger Chad's. King. It, it KFC. I mean, everybody's it's on the coast. looking at it. It's you know I. It's just that it, it, it's not necessarily in the stratosphere right now in terms no. of valuation if it's a real thing. Look, there have been talk for a long time that if you are going to bring up China into our standards on those Think things, about everybody that. wants to eat meat, you've got to find another way to or supply meat, it. Or a meat substitute. It. Right. That you've got to find another way to supply it. And that might be this, but I don't think they've made as many inroads there at this point that would justify some of those. I just think if I, were, uh, if I could own stocks that I think... If you, you believe buy. in the story, believe I, in climate believe in change. Story. I you don't believe in the I story. I don't believe in the story. But if you do, I would buy it. If I could buy stocks, because so many people like you do believe in it, I would buy the stock. So you would buy it based on you your belief. Because <laughs> based on the misinformed belief that you have. The, uh, being an investor <laughs> is being like a psychologist. Right. Right? right. Crowds, Psychoanalyzing crowds every markets and, and, and crowds, actually. Right. So the question is whether there's a big enough crowd. Exactly. Well, I just think eventually that, you know, these are very reasonable valuations. If, if I say if, it becomes a true alternative to, to getting protein to large masses of people around the world. They make turkey yet? Uh, yeah, there's a name for it. Oh, tofurkey is the... No, I don't mean version. that. I mean impossible meat turkey oh, or that beyond meat turkey. No, but I think Purdue is working on some of those lines for... The problem with, okay, if you do a ground meat, it's a lot easier. I know way too much about this. To try and actually give the density of a steak you cut into or a turkey breast or a chicken breast or something, that's a lot harder because you can mush it up and do it. But to be able to layer it like muscles Talking about the McRibs again? Yeah. Yeah. So you could pour... No, it's not pouring it. It's just pour this into something that looks like a turkey leg, a mold. Uh, I I don't think you have. They have the texture right on that. That's, That's the trickier part of it. Doing any ground beef is an easier fake. Right. We're going to let someone else handle turkey uh, dinner. But also like filet mignon. There's a lot of things they can't do yet. Yeah. No, believe me, I know. I've seen what they can do and tasted and then had the after effects of it. Uh, So coming up, um, that might have been me. How do I ever know? (laughs) It's different than your daily. How do you ever know? Cheese will be next. Up next on Squawk Pod. We have growing income and wealth disparity in this country. How do we fix that problem? Former Senator Heidi Heitkamp and former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor examine whether wealth taxes are a reasonable path to equity. Back after this. 
CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. All right, guys, we're in the deep block. This is Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Dorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan, Molas and Company Vice Chair and uh, former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor in studio right now. Senator Warren's plan to target wealth for more taxes may also include another big segment of the middle class. Robert Frank joins us right now. He's got more on the story. Hey, Robert. Good morning, Becky. Well, on the campaign trail, Elizabeth Warren said she would raise taxes only on the rich. So when you make it big, when you make it really big, when you make it top one-tenth of one percent big, pitch in two cents so everybody else gets a chance to make it. Now, her wealth tax, uh, along with that, she's also proposed a dozen other tax increases, including one that would raise taxes on those making $250,000 a year. Now, her Social Security plan includes a payroll tax of 14.8% on those making $250,000 or more. This would affect more than 5 million American households. Now, a taxpayer making $350,000 would pay an extra $14,800 a year in income taxes. She would also limit deductions for those making more than about $320,000. And, of course, restore the old top tax rate of 39.6%. So... The top federal income tax would top 54 percent, back to 1971 levels. And for those living in New York City or or California, the combined federal and state taxes would be over 67 percent. And by the way, it's not just wage income. Investment income or capital gains would also be taxed at the same rate, even when you don't sell. Now, right now, Social Security taxes are capped at about $133,000. Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg would all raise that cap, effectively raising income taxes for those making more than one hundred and thirty three thousand a year. Would would all of them get rid of the cap or some of them would just raise the cap so you pay for a little longer? Some of them would get rid of it. Some of them started again at two fifty and they all have different rates. But there is this oddity where Social Security payroll taxes go up to one thirty three. It'll go up a little bit more next year. And then it stops. Well, it's not, it's not an oddity. It's because it was started out as an insurance plan. And the point is you pay an insurance to a certain point, And after that, it's not because they didn't want to call it a tax because they didn't think they'd get it passed through to- Congress at that point. Right. But, but oddity in the sense that unlike the rest of the tax code or much of it, it's not progressive as progressive. Yeah. Can you talk a little so that's bit. what they, many right. Democrats, including them, them in Washington, want to change. But it was that. designed that way that's right. by FDR. Well, well, right well, what about the enforcement? I thought that it was a big issue. I mean, listen, this stuff is ridiculous. I mean, it'll kill the economy if god forbid this is ever passed but and, and, what what about enforcing this kind of wealth tax i mean there's other other countries that have gone through this and have basically said it's you can't do it yeah and, well a lot part of warren's plan is to spend hundreds of billions of dollars over 10 years for better irs enforcement and, and better irs auditors and more staffing and that is a constant problem that we talk about a lot where audits for the wealthy have fallen she would really spend a lot of money a lot of the proceeds for the wealth tax will go into uh, enforcing the wealth tax <laughs> right but the illiquid <laughs> the illiquid investment and in assets yes that's that, tough right you 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 cannot even imagine how people, yeah, it would be hard Let, let's bring in our, our our guess who 
is a CNBC contributor, so probably up in one of these higher brackets. Just from that, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, uh, former senator uh, of North Dakota, now one of the Country Project founding board members, and as I said, CNBC contributor. Senator, uh, it's, it's good to uh, probably not, that did not put you in the higher bracket, did it? The CNBC, uh, no, uh, no. That, uh, no, it, that did it, not it do it. It did not. That, okay, yeah, no. that's all right. Anyway, no. you, you heard Robert's uh, report. We ha- the, your, part, your, your party has a lot of programs that it would, they would like to introduce, obviously, that would need to be paid for. What's your idea about which um, new programs are most important and the way to pay for those programs? What kind of tax? What do you think? I think the first thing you could do is not pay for them, which is apparently in vogue in Washington, D.C. on both sides no, no, of the aisle. That's an ad hominem it, it, attack. And, and I ask you a serious thing co- to say. I ask you a serious It's just gratuitous say. nastiness. The old Roman <laughs> emperor. I mean, uh, well, I just have to point that out. I just have to point that okay, out. Okay, fine. But, but you have. You're on separ- the record. But, but what would you <laughs> do to, separate. to try to come? Let's, let's, let's come together, Heidi. Let's come together. Okay. Oh, you betcha. So what should we do? <laughs> yeah. Um, what, th- th- let's separate Social Security from uh, income taxes okay. for a moment, because Social Security, there's a lot of discussion about raising the cap. In fact, there's a bipartisan proposal that donut holes the cap, you know, stops it at a certain point and then picks it up when the firefighters, uh, so the firefighters would continue to get a break. But over like 250, that's pretty popular, eliminating the cap to try and bring solvency to the Social Security system. And And so that's a separate issue, I think, than the issue of what to do with income taxes. I think Andrew's done a great job on your program talking about all the ways the income tax structure, as we have it today, benefits the rich and how you can avoid taxation with stepped-up basis, how you can avoid it by uh, simply transferring your wealth to a, a nonprofit. And so when you look at kind of the strategy, you could do a lot of things to equalize the, the um, income tax structure without all these kind of crazy but, ideas. I'll ask you a, que- I'll ask you a question circulated. that actually Eric just asked me uh, during the commercial break, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very thoughtful and smart question, which Thank is, you. which is he, he said, look, That's high the elites or the intellectuals or whatever you want to call them understand these issues, 1031 exchanges, carried interest, step-up basis on death, all of these things, and I can go on and on and on, but I think the argument you were making to me was that the larger populace, if you will, that doesn't really change the, you know, move the needle for them and, and whether, and whether well, that is yeah. right. So Yeah, I think, I think it's so much easier to say two cents. We're going to charge you two cents, and that creates a whole other infrastructure, which, it, you know, all the states used to have a personal property tax. They abandoned it for a lot of reasons, mostly enforcement, saying in many ways it's inequitable, but it also is an enforcement nightmare to have a national personal property tax, I think, reintroduces a bad idea that the states got rid of years ago and, and that many countries tried and, and have failed. And so let's talk about like, like trusting the people to understand that the tax code does have these loopholes and we can change it, but it's just not the soundbite that people want. And the question that I would ask back to all of you is we have growing income and wealth disparity in this country. How do we fix that problem? And I know a lot of you guys will say, well, you just grow the, the, um, the income earning opportunities and shorten the, the number in the labor supply and that will grow the income. So far that hasn't worked very well. 
And so um, as you were talking before, we do have a labor shortage, but yet we have not seen the kind of wage growth um, or business investment that would invest in that wage so, growth that Heidi, may grow those big Heidi, programs. But Heidi, let me uh, good morning, by the way. So, but hey, how, good morning, Eric. How do you... How, how do you do that? I mean, first of all, I think there's a discussion to be had about this disparity of wealth and income and whether it's cyclical, just like capitalism is cyclical. But what, what are the priorities in terms of spending? Because Elizabeth Warren has got a plan for everything, as we know. And clearly, I think it's coming out now that there's a price to be paid for a plan for everything. So what, what are the priorities? How would you spend that money, if that's what you're I, advocating, to close the gap? Well, one of the things that I think is it's a long-term systemic challenge. We need to invest in early childhood education. We need to invest in keeping people healthier longer. We need to do the things that, that we should be doing on infrastructure, which hopefully will grow the economy and spread that wealth kind of consistently across all levels. But the, the real challenge that you have is that we're in a changing economy. We've gone from manufacturing. Yes, Mr. President, we are not going to be the manufacturer manufacturing center that we were back in the 50s. We've transitioned to a service economy, but we haven't transitioned our education system to take advantage of those high-paying opportunities that are you know, much broader than simply sitting on the factory line and riveting, uh, you know, or riveting to a, uh, an automobile. Okay. Senator, have I highlighted anything effectively uh, in, in, as you've been watching? Is it really just Andrew uh, doing a good job? Or, I mean, do I ever, do I ever do anything? Uh, Joe, good. Joe Senator? you're there for color commentary, aren't okay. you? Not really I don't know. Real yeah. good. Okay. You betcha. Next on Squawk Pod, Michael Bloomberg's campaign co-chair, Greg Fisher, considers his job's biggest task to share Mike's story. They think of Mike Bloomberg as this big business guy. They don't understand him as a guy with a big heart that fights for great social causes. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Our final story for today, Bloomberg's bid for president. This week, his campaign is heating up with ads and with his first appearance as a candidate. That was in Virginia on Monday. He's made a point of announcing that he will not be accepting private donations, but that hasn't quieted criticism of his wealth or of the way he'll use his money in the race for the Democratic nomination. The same day that Bloomberg made his debut as a candidate, Elizabeth Warren was in Iowa with a very hot take on his bid for the White House. Michael Bloomberg is making a bet about democracy in 2020. He doesn't need people He only needs bags and bags of money. And if you get out and knock on a thousand doors, he'll just spend another $37 million to flood the airways. And that's how he plans to buy a nomination in the Democratic Party. I know, I know. We've talked a lot about Bloomberg over the last couple of weeks. But we haven't heard from his campaign, which is why today we're bringing you a conversation with the Louisville, Kentucky mayor, Greg Fisher. He's the co-chair of Michael Bloomberg's presidential campaign. Also on set, you'll hear former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. Here's Becky. Mr. Mayor, why don't we talk about why you are supporting Michael Bloomberg, why you are chairing this for him? Well, Mike's ready to go from day one. Never have we had a candidate for president that has proven his capability in starting a business as a guy that grew up in a middle-class family and grown into one of the world's great companies. 
then took on New York City for 12 years, elected three different times, and made this the greatest city in the world. And then over this past decade, has spent his time trying to figure out how he can give his money away. He's a pretty different candidate than the other 18 candidates running for the Democratic nomination. Were you waiting to see what he did with this? Were you, what were you thinking about the other Democrats that have been in the race to this point? Well, I've been kind of sitting on the sidelines, uh, but when Mike called and explained what he was thinking about doing, and I've just always admired his work as a fellow mayor, what he's done here. I'm a business guy as well. It just happens to be mayor. It's hard to build a great business like he has and, and really have excellence like he has, what both in the he? business world and in running a city. So I think he's one of the most accomplished, competent people. I constantly say it. However... There is an issue of how does he excite the base. You see it both in terms of the poll numbers unto themselves, the way he speaks. By the way, I know him, so I like him. I mean, that's not an issue. But but to the larger public, that's a big lift. Well, I think that's the key, right? If people get to know Mike Bloomberg... And they see but Mike most people are not going to get to know Mike Bloomberg on a one-to-one basis. No, but you can see that through the media that he's right. going to run. I, if, I, if we get to know Bloomberg, he wins. Mr. Mayor, I, I want to know this. I mean, listen, he's always been, as there's a general election play here, right? The, uh, Kevin Cheeky was out yesterday saying that the general election is about six states, and it's about 31 congressional districts in those states, and that's how they're going to win. The problem is how in the world... And again, with all due respect, I have a lot of respect for Mike Bloomberg. How in the world does he get through the primary and the Democratic side of things? He's way too wealthy. The, the base is way too woke. Uh, I, I cannot imagine how that works. How well, does he I mean, get this through is, the primary? This is the struggle that the de- Democrats are going through in the primary right now, right? What we need is a center-left candidate that can both win the primary and then win the general. So you can see... In the primary right now, that's the tension that's taking place. So in comes Mike Bloomberg with a resume that is extraordinarily unique. Uh, this knock on him as being a billionaire, to me, doesn't make any sense. Here's a guy that grew up in a middle-class family. Everybody would listen, like to do this, right? Listen, you're talking to, I mean, I agree, you're but I'm just saying. You're over here. It's, right. What do you do with the rest of the Democratic base who's been supporting uh, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders? Well, I think when they look, okay, what has Mike been doing with his foundation? Look at what he's been doing with climate with gun safety, with population health, with women's reproduction. Almost all billionaires he's are, are putting, billionaires are all giving away. They all signed that these causes they all signed that, to Democrats. Some, I, I mean, for me, those aren't the right causes for me. But there are a lot of other billionaires that have get, signed the giving pledge that still get completely hammered, pilloried, um, called useless, called freeloaders. Called, so it has nothing to do with giving the money away. They all give their sure money away. No, there's a vast difference between a giving pledge and having Bloomberg Philanthropies that's worked Look, in okay. there are other cities. There's other billionaires that have given away money that are still being typecast but, but as not, nasty billionaires. Totally different than Mike in terms of the depth. Totally different than Mike. Really? He's the best absolutely. philanthropist in, because of if climate change. If you were a mayor and saw the, how he's been working with mayors all over America so he's on the best these issues... Well, he puts his money where his heart is, and that's what people need to Other do. You know, and then he follows it up with action. You know, that, you know what is very interesting about uh, Mike Bloomberg's entry in the race? It does say something about um, the what I see is a moribund list of candidates on the Democratic side, because obviously there was an assessment here, and I'm sure well-polled and analyzed, 
that Bloomberg said, hey, there's not a national candidate here. There's not someone who can excite the Democratic base. They're just regional candidates. Sure. Even Joe Biden is something. That's a, that's I, I a sad right. commentary. And it's, assessment yeah. of how Bloomberg probably went through it. But uh, let's say that Bloomberg does get the nomination. Let's forget what happens to that point. How do you think he runs against Trump? How do you think that matches up? Well, it, it, you know, it's about Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina. And that's what they that's what they're focused on. I'm sure the Trump campaign is as focused on. But I'll tell you one thing. Unlike the other Democrats, Mike Bloomberg comes to the race and says, hey, Trump is winning. You know, they've they've even recognized the fact that you got to get out of this bubble in these coastal cities and say, you know what, the heartland is for Donald Trump. Uh, and I'm not so sure that Mike Bloomberg sells in the heartland. That's, right. that's Let's the get problem. out of these. Well, so, but I, uh, the question to me is not just the heartland. I, I actually, I was telling Joe, I got in this discussion yesterday with a young woman who was just couldn't even conceive of the idea of someone who has a billion dollars or more, in this case, of being <laughs> the candidate. But that, that, Where do you hang out? Hold on. <laughs> that, that, that the idea of that kind of wealth unto itself uh, was was being argued to me oh, disqualified. The New York Times, what am I saying? Joe. What am I saying? What am I saying? I know where you hang out. I know where you hang out. On the merits of this discussion, the question is, how does he get over that? How does he take somebody who has that view yeah. to the extent they do? It's not a view that I share, but to the extent it's a Completely. view out there. How, how does he overcome that? Well, and this is what campaigns are about, right? So he has the resources to tell his story. Right. I believe once his story is told, is a middle-class guy that's done really good. Right. That's given uh-huh. his resources to help in all these Democratic causes. Most people don't know that. Know that They think of Mike Bloomberg as this big business guy. Right. They don't understand him as a guy with a big heart right. that fights for great social causes. Okay, so then I get, then the next uh, argument becomes about stop and frisk, right? Have, yeah. you, have you read any of the, the Charles Blow columns who say you can't apologize a little bit. three I mean, days look, before I, you're running I look at and this think that a, anybody's going to give you credit for it? I'm just saying it's, it's what the... That's on the left. That's That goes to the primary. But right. that goes to the right. primary. This is... That goes to the primary. The for the right is he, he jets off the Bermuda on a private jet. But what do good leaders do? With climate change, with armed guards. Reflect on what protecting him. They apologize. They improve. Mike started the Young Men's Initiative, which was the premier initiative that really helped launch My Brother's Keepers with President Obama that says, here's how we invest in young men and boys of color. Again, follow the money with him, see the heart, at work. Okay, and then uh, one more, though, is some of the comments about women. I'm just, yeah, I'm just what saying. About the, what about the nanny state? What about exactly. the big gulp? Big right? gulp. So, you know what? I think, I mean, so you're on the, I'm on the other side of that. Right. I no, said I you're, you're, you're giving this the New York liberal. City. Listen, this is New York City. I think he but saved th- hundreds think, of thousands of lives with cigarettes. Think, think about this. Think, of, think about the suburban swing vote that everyone says now is in play. If we're both arguing to, 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 pil- to pillar the guy from the right and the left, there I'm are problems. You're on the left. left. You're on the left. I'm, I'm, I'm coming at you from the right. Yeah. Yeah. But look, but look what Mike has done on both sides. He's just right. got to, he's got to come in from both right. sides. Well, he's got to protect look, so many flanks. This campaign's about threading the needle, right? There's no question about that. <laughs> but when you talk about population health, what he's done against cigarettes and saving people's lives, what he's done to fight the opioid scourge, as people learn about Mike, they're going to say, this is a fascinating guy. 
that has helped a lot of people. I'm going to take a hard look How at does him. he take on this economy when the economy is, is, you know, the best economy we've had in 50 years? What is my that, that is say? a total Wall Street perspective there. No, you come no, no the it's, about, it's about low America. income. It's, it's, about, um, it's about wage earners in this country. The wage increases. Why is that going to have percent unemployment you're in the top about 20%? You're doing great. Why if you're in the middle class, half, you're struggling. If you're low-key, you fall behind. So the economy is not working. Why is 3.5% unemployment and the lowest minority unemployment in, in history? Why is that a Wall Street? You guys need to economy. get out of this bubble that you're in right here and talk Listen, to people. Listen, to answer that question, is three and a half percent good or not? You asked the low-income mom how her life has improved in the last the, twenty years, and she says she's fallen further behind. You ask the middle-income worker in America; they say, "I'm struggling to he's keep." Been people. president for two you, and a half years. We had eight years where they fell further behind. Fine. There's the wage gains are happening now: three percent, whatever right. it is. Middle income. You need going to get to Main Street. Well, for eight that. for eight years, you could have talked to Main Street, and they got nothing. Yeah, but that explains why the Democratic Party has gone further left and why... Explains what elected the, Trump in the first place. Issues. These are issues that have to be answered and have to be dealt There's no with. question. Is he coming at this from the perspective of thinking all he wants to do is win the presidency, or is he thinking if he can drag the Democratic Party further to the center, that that's a success in itself? Well, I think, look, the issue is winning the presidency. Our country is fractured right now. There is no question about that. We have to get somebody here in these next four years that's going to pull our country together, restore the alliances that we've had around this world so we can get our country back on track again in so many different ways. So that's the objective. And you've got to win the primary, obviously, to do that. And I know enough primary voters are interested in that, that they're going to give Mike a real hard look. Did you see Elizabeth Warren talking yesterday about... I I just, just, having been through... As you, as buying the election, primaries. I'm going out, I'm talking to people. This guy thinks he comes in. Bernie Sanders talking about I mean, well, he's sure. going to get hammered. Sure, that's by, what they're going to say. Elizabeth Warren's still in the lead. She has, she has a lot of supporters. What's wrong with a guy from a middle class I'm not saying anything wrong with it, but how do you do it legitimately? How do you, if you don't get any of the 63 million deplorables, and then you, you split Hillary 65 million with half of them going know, to Bernie Sanders? That's your stick on this. Stick? Yeah. Well, where's but, the other 60 million? They're, they, they don't you got to talk to the voters. First, and let's okay, you're going to get the deplorables, or you're going to get the Elizabeth Warren. Look, people. it's an interesting. Well, it's, you a, can take it's an interesting tactic, though. <laughs> but it's you an interesting tactic if you look at the way the Democratic primary works, because it's proportional allocation of delegates. So I assume that that's a strategy to try and get through the primaries, because unlike in '16, when my party went and had basically winner take all, even for those with the plurality, maybe that's what it is. I just well, I, look, I, I think you got the never Trumpers. I think you would also get appeal to people, right. uh, Republicans who don't like some of the taxes. Those are the main ones. I think you get more of them than Democrats. Potentially. Potentially. That's what about the other mayor? You don't think the other mayor is... Mayor Buttigieg? Got, yeah. Pete's a great guy. Obviously has a very different life experience than Mike, but Mike's ready to go from day one in terms of business experience Buttigieg running a big not. city. It's just you had, you know, all, these, the, all the other candidates, there were a lot of them. All good people, all of them, you know, pounding the streets, setting up organizations, talking to voters, taking 85,000 selfies, three debates that they've already been in. To have someone, a billionaire from New York City, come in and say, none of you are good enough. I'm going to let me handle this is, is not it, it doesn't look good, and it's not going to. I don't think this it's going to work. What politics are all about. This is what huh? running race is all about. This, putting different points of view out there. This is the beginning of the real fracture on the Democratic side. Okay, I mean, I just, I don't. I mean, I'm see glad he's talking if about if capitalism. If it's Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, and not your choice, do you vote for them over President Trump? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, our, our our country is in a very difficult spot right now. I don't think we're going to get to that point. 
but America needs to pull itself back together. The way that America is tearing itself apart from within, otherizing each other, is not a sustainable path. The reason I ask is because clearly you are a much more moderate. I mean, to support Mayor Bloomberg, you have to be a, a relative sort of uh, moderate Democrat. <laughs> moderate Democrat. Yeah. I'm um, a business the, guy that happens to be a mayor right now. Right. Thank you very much, Mayor. Thank you. Okay, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. High five. High five. Thank you. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.